0: If you have a Bible, we're going to open up to the end of 1 Corinthians 4. We left off around verse number 19 last week, so we'll pick back up uh, right where we left off as we uh, continue a very important conversation about the church, about the health of the church, uh, the culture within the church. So we're going to jump back in uh, at the end of chapter 4 as Paul is transitioning from talking about the importance of the local church and how it carries a significant weight in every believer's life. So if you missed the last couple of messages, especially last week, please go back and, and check out that message. Um, and more importantly, read chapter 3 and 4. Uh, because that there it's unmistakable uh, how it's significant of a role the church plays in every believer's life. And then he segues into a place of pastoral oversight. And concern for the church because remember back in chapter one, he made it very clear there's some stuff going on at Corinth that he was concerned about and that needed to be addressed. And he, he kind of had to start the lay the foundation of why it mattered, uh, why our individual lives matter to the whole, and why the whole matters to the individual. So we spent the last month kind of talking about that the importance of the local church. I, I said this last week to have this conversation with a Wednesday night group uh, in a local church. This is what you call preaching to the choir, uh, which I'm aware of that, but I'm also aware that a lot of us um, uh, attend the church and, and love the Bible and, and love the church and read the Bible, but we haven't always had it explained to us or re- read it in the Bible uh, about why it's important. And, and really, the the real importance of it is that we might be able to communicate it to those who aren't here. Uh, a lot of us do this uh, because we've always done it or we've been told that it was important, and that's great. Uh, but what we've done the last couple of weeks is hopefully internalize the importance and been, and been prepared to communicate to those that aren't here and those that don't attend any local church, for that matter, uh, to communicate to them why it's important and, and why the the, the the word Christian and the word uh, church member or church participant really should go hand in hand. So uh, he writes in chapter 3 that every believer plays a key role in their local church and that local church plays a crucial role in every believer's life. So he talked about how there's a day coming when we'll be judged and how it's not just for our individual lives, but our collective life and collective participation in the body of Christ. And then in chapter four, he addressed those who had grown disenchanted with the church, who had felt like they didn't need it anymore, felt like they'd grown out of it or were too smart for it and all the different excuses. Uh, he writes about the sacredness that exists between a church member, and not just I'm on a church roll, but I mean a participant, someone who worships together with their brother and sister, someone who participates in ministry with their brother and sister, someone who is a, who's in the trenches, right? He, he writes about uh, the sacredness that exists between a church member and their church family, and, and we talked about this a whole lot last week, uh, about this irreplaceable bond that should exist between every believer and their church, their church leaders. We, we talked about the mutual trust, the mutual integrity that should exist from leader to layman and everyone in between uh, and, and, and the family that we are a part of. Uh, with all that being said, it sets up nicely and fittingly the next phase of Paul's message which is about the health of the church and the condition of the local church um, as we that we are members of. Um, so we can talk about this on a large scale, you know, the church at large, you know, what's the health of the whole church, but, you know, I can't control what goes on down the road. I can't control what goes on across the world, but we do have some sort of influence over what the body we are a part of. So that's the level that we're going to talk about it on, um, our local body of believers, our local family. Um, so it's it, it, an easy way to set these sections and studies back to back is like this. Uh, chapters three and 4 were all about our participation within our local church being critical to our spiritual health. That our spiritual health and well-being is inseparable from our participation within our local church. That, that we cannot, no one can say, and, and, and I know this might sound bold and brash because there's plenty that don't believe this, but no one can say that they are healthy spiritually without being rooted in or seeking to be rooted in a a local body of believers, a local family uh, representation of the body of Christ that are Participation within uh, is critical to our spiritual health. And if there is no participation, there is going to be some sort of void in our spiritual well-being. Nobody's too holy or holy enough to be on their own and in and of themselves. Now, beginning in chapter 5, the focus is going to shift to the spiritual well-being of the church as a whole. And it's going to address how we, or it's going to talk to us about how we relate to it and how we are concerned about it. How our care and concern for the spiritual health of our local church reflects our commitment to Christ. So we talked about it from an us for us compared to the whole body perspective. And now we're going to talk about it from, hey, what level of care and concern do we have for the body as a whole, for the institution as a whole, for uh, the, the community as a whole? So essentially, a true follower of Christ is going to be invested in and going to care about the well-being of his body, of the body of Christ of a local assembly. Now, what's as important is what sort of care we show for the body, because this can sometimes I think we can run different ways with this. Uh, our motivation and the posture we t- take in addressing the health of the body, because there's a difference, there's a big difference in having a possessive and critical spirit. And having a humble and compassionate spirit, and I bet you can guess which is the right one to have. Plenty of people will, will line up and say, let me tell you what's wrong with the church. But they do so with a very critical and also a very possessive as in, it's me versus them, it's mine versus theirs. And, and that's not going to be conducive to any sort of improvement or any sort of, uh, of health or, or you know transition and transformation. Paul makes it very clear that to actually see the church grow and be better and be healthier, it takes a humble and compassionate spirit from us to the whole body. Now, we can take it even farther. Usually, the Christian response to church struggles and church problems or so-called Christian response, usually it comes in one of three ways. Uh, We have to be prepared... And know how to respond to church problems because if there is a church full of people, there's going to be problems. There's going to be issues and troubles and trials. Uh, We have to be prepared to know how to respond to the church's issues that happen because we... uh, P- imperfect people make it up. Uh number 1, the church is an essential part of our Christianity. So we have to be ready to address the problems because we can't ever decide it's not it's, it's not important, it's not worth it. Uh of course it's worth it because there is no Christianity without the church. Um also, there are going to be plenty of problems and we can't just walk away from the church when we encounter them for reasons we've already touched on. Uh if you're not aware of the problems, it's because somebody's not making you aware of the problems. It's, and sometimes that happens, but still we have to be ready to address them as we are aware of them. So there are three typical or potential responses to church troubles and woes. And here's the three different responses that we can potentially take. There's the careless response, which is the attitude that I'm a Christian, and all that really matters is me and Jesus, and I am separated from the body of Christ, and I really only consider me and God. I don't care about anybody else, and you can't make me care about anybody else. Yeah, I might be a part of the church, the spiritual body of Christ, but I'm not accountable to anybody physically that I am not going to worry about anybody alongside of me or anybody next to me. It's me and Jesus, nobody else. So that's one potential response and plenty of people choose that route but let me just give you a hint that's not going to work for us if we're trying to do it the right way there's also the critical response which is the christian who yeah they're a part of the body but they've elevated themselves in the body and they've become so elevated that they're kind of always looking down on the body uh which they're quick to judge those so yeah they're members of the body but it's them and jesus and everybody else is kind of on a tier below them so again, you might would say that's better than being careless because at least they're there, but it's really not any better because they're trying to say that, hey, it's, you know, I'm a, I'm a little bit above, and, and this is the very religious attitude that a lot of Christians unfortunately have. So there's the careless response, there's the critical response, and then there's, you guessed it, the actual Christian response, which is the compassionate response, which is... The heart of a Christian who sees themselves alongside of their brother and sister within the body of Christ and is choosing to bear the burden of those alongside them when they stumble, when they fall and when they're going through something that maybe even be embarrassing or being uh, quite uh, quite unbecoming for a Christian. So I don't think it's too much of a stretch to condense these uh, condense all of us down to these three categories. It's usually not a blend. Usually we're clearly in one of these and sometimes we go from one to the other but we're always going to be in one of these categories. Um, On any given day we might be in all three but we're going to always be either in the careless mode, in the critical mode, or in the compassionate mode when it comes to how we relate to the body and how we relate to other Christians as a church member. Uh, The goal of course is that we remain and persist from number three. Uh, so that's the goal, and, and again, we, we pray that we always are there. Now, we're going to talk around these points of view tonight in our message, so just keep them in mind and reference them as we work through. So if you want to make a note of these and just kind of consider, hey, how is, which, which one of these attitudes were the Corinthians taking, and have I possibly taken, and, and, and which one should I take? Um, So at the end of chapter four, Paul tells Corinth that he's going to pay the church a visit to sort through the aforementioned issues within the church. Um, That we can read between the lines. Many of the church members are not taking too seriously. Some of them are very careless. Some of them are very critical. But very few of them, if any of them, are compassionate. So we see the issue at hand. Not only is there some great sinning going on, there's some uh, unfortunate responses to the sin that are going on. So listen to how Paul sets the tone for what what he's going to go deeper into in chapter 5. Beginning in verse number 19, he says, Hey, I'm coming to you shortly. I will come to you shortly if the Lord wills and I will know and and I will know not the word of those who are puffed up or those who are arrogant those who are either careless or critical but not compassionate I will know not the word of those who are puffed up but the power because here's what Paul's interested in. Verse 20, for the kingdom of God is not in word but in power. He says, I hear there's a lot of talk going on in Corinth about what's wrong and how to fix the problems and who is the problem, but I don't see a lot of power as in the problem being fixed, which is unfortunate, the case in a lot of religion. A lot of talk, but not a lot of power, not a lot of change, not a lot of transformation. He says in verse 21, what do you want? Shall I come to you with a rod? And not physically to beat them up, but a rod of discipline or in love and a spirit of gentleness. So Paul being a little bit foreboding that he's going to pay them a visit and he's not very excited about paying them a visit because he realizes the church is really uh, quite the mess at this point. So he, brings, uh, he writes that he's not just bringing a bunch of words to the table. He's, his goal is to see the power of God work in a way that leaves the church sobered up and straightened out, to put it bluntly. Uh, this is such an appropriate, fitting contrast description uh, to the talk about the church and how problems should and should not be addressed. And, and again, I mentioned it. There's a whole lot of talk going on. In many churches. Big churches, small churches, everybody is pretty good at talking about what should be done and what they would do and what they are doing. Uh, But talk about what is important or what isn't, sadly, does not always bring about change and doesn't always bring about power. And sadly, the thing about talking, the thing about our own comments and our own opinions. Most talk centers around human opinions. There's not a lot of consulting with God's word. And that's what Paul's talking about. He said, hey, I hear y'all, everybody has an opinion, everybody has a word, everybody has a comment, but I wanna get into the word of God and actually see God make a difference and change lives. And and clearly that's not going on at Corinth. Um, How we handle problems and challenges and disruptions in the church is a big, big deal. Handling them with the right posture and disposition might be an even bigger deal. But when Paul talks about power, he's talking about the power of God, not human influence, not charisma or intimidation. The New Testament makes it very clear that God was and is very interested and invested in the local church. And he means business about it reaching its potential. Christ is very much committed to keeping his body holy. And whole. And as a pastor, this both makes me very, very much uh, aware of the job to do, but also it makes me very confident that Christ is doing his job and is always at work, even when I can't, and even when we can't always be so as hands on as maybe we would like to be or be as able to make changes as we would like to be. Uh, Christ is very committed to his body. He is committed to keeping his body holy and whole. Uh, I think one of the most overlooked examples of this really is found in the book of Acts, where God demonstrates his power, uh, and, and really all throughout the book of Acts, he is demonstrating his power. Now, I don't have to, I don't show you this. Uh, we're going to look at a passage in Acts, and I want you to flip there with me. We're, I'm not going to show you this to scare you. Uh, because it, 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 maybe it should scare you, but I'm not showing it to you to scare you. Uh, and I'm not claiming that I have this kind of power because the one who does the things that we're going to read about is God. No, no man leverages power in this story that we're going to read. Um, but I want to show it to you to point out how serious God has been, and I believe he still is, how serious God is about maintaining the purity and the power of the body of Christ. Especially in the case of unaddressed sin or something harmful that has taken root in the church or a spirit coming over the church that is against the well-being in the the upbuilding of the body of Christ. So, I want to look at a passage in Acts four that Luke includes in the story that I think is very important. so if you would turn with me and, and it' it'll, it'll set the stage for us in, the, in, the, in chapter five really well turn with me again, put a bookmark here turn with me to acts four verse thirty two and there's two uh, there are two passages back to back that are really set up to contrast um, uh, kind of the, 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 the response that some that Christians were giving to the work of God and uh, the, the way God responded to, to how they were handling it. So I want to read to you first, Acts four thirty two thirty seven 32, uh, and I want you to, to just soak all this in um, and, and just get a, get a glimpse of how just how united the early church was and how on fire they were and how God was moving in their lives. Now the multitude of those who believed were in one heart and one soul. Neither did any one say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. It's a big statement. It's a big statement that we want to say. Well, I'm glad that doesn't apply to me. It actually does. Verse 33. With the great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Now, nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought their proceeds of things that were sold. Now, God didn't say to do this. They didn't have a vote to do this. They just all did this out of their own willingness. Can you imagine? Verse 36, and... uh, Joseph, who was, by named, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is transferred, uh, translated son of encouragement, and that's Barnabas who becomes the Apostle Paul's um, teacher, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it to the apostles' feet. Now, I could go on a whole, uh, whole sidebar about how a Levite, Owning land was a rare thing, so for a Levite to sell the land that they owned would have been a very radical thing to do because Levites never had land. So for this Levite to have land and then to sell that land and to give the money away from that land, that's a radical thing to do that clearly only the work of God led him to do. Now there's this overwhelming spirit of generosity and commitment to the whole from the individuals. Do you see that? That these people were bringing from their own and giving it to the whole. They were liquidating their personal assets for the good and gain of the whole body of Christ. Now, not only was this an outstanding movement of generosity on Barnabas's part, but we're told here that all of the people were doing this. And what's more important to know is that in the first century, especially in first century Jerusalem, being a Christian would have made it pretty difficult to hold a job. So a lot of these Christians were coming together and living together as a part of this underground community because if you were a follower of Jesus publicly, you were a wanted man. You were a wanted woman. So suddenly, you had no source of income. So suddenly, some people had to step up and say, hey, I'm going to do what I got to do to take care of you and take care of each other. We're going to take care of each other. So you had these radical movements of generosity where people who had the ability to were selling everything they had in bringing the proceeds to the church. And and again, this communal nature, this fellowship of believers, it it, it could not be fabricated. This was not forced. This was a natural overflow of God's kindness to them through them. if, If you wanna pray for revival, I don't wanna get off on a sidebar, but I'm gonna have to. If you want God to send revival, pray for God to give you this kind of generosity because this is what starts it. Every single time that there's ever been revival throughout this throughout history it starts from an overwhelming response to how God has been good to us how can we be good to others to show him to show them what God has done now keep all that in mind with what happens next And again, remember, there was no business meeting, hey, we all got to do this. There's no commandment from God, hey, y'all all all have to do this. There was just this spirit moving in the church that was leading people to do this. Chapter 5, verse 1. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira his wife sold a possession, And, and, and we interpret that as being land. And he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. So Ananias... We don't know, was he moved by God to do this? Was he just doing it because he had to get some money to to live off of because he had lost his job? Was he doing this because he saw somebody else do it and wanted to do it too but decided I'm not going to give all of it? We don't know. We don't know the reason behind his intentions here but we hear that he sold some land and he gave part of it which sounds like a godly thing to do but apparently was was not acceptable. And Peter said to Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land to yourself? Well, Peter, nobody told me I had to give it all. Where's that that verse in the Bible? I thought it was 10%. But but again, the the spirit that was working, the movement of God was that, hey, if you're going to give it, you're giving it all, which is a pretty radical thing. Now, we don't know the motive behind the sale, only that God expected 100% to be donated to the church. That's just all, that's what we know. God expected all of it to be given. Not some, not part, all. This is why I live from a place that everything belongs to God, because, and that I should always be ready to, 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 for him to use it all, take it all, and ask me to let somebody else have it all. This passage is so ingrained in my heart that out of fear and reverence and faith in his dominion, I dare not consider my wealth, my possessions, my stuff as mine. 100%, 10%, 90%. I dare not consider that it belongs to me. It's 100% God's. Because this story tells when someone decided that they had authority over any portion of their life, they met a pretty unfortunate fate. Now, we can try to wiggle our way out of this, but I'd be afraid to, especially under the accountability that we have. Now, here's what happens. While it remained, was it not your own, verse four? And after it was sold, was it not, your own, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. So Peter says, hey, Ananias, you know what God's doing right now. Again, no verse, no commandment, no, no meeting. This was just God's spirit. Peter said, Ananias, you know that God is moving everybody to give it all away and you kept some of it back. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last breath. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. And it goes on to say that as they were carrying his body out to bury him, Verse 7, three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. And Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Look at the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down on his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, carrying her out and buried her by her husband. And so great fear came upon all the church and upon those who heard these things. I bet great fear did come upon the whole church. Now, why do I bring, you that, bring that story up to you tonight as we get into this chapter about God holding the church accountable to a certain standard? Has God made a habit of killing people who mean harm or create disruption in his body? Well, the answer is I don't really know. I don't know. But it's clear that when it comes to holding the church to a certain standard, God is capable of holding us to the highest of standards. You follow me there? Because these two didn't buy into the spirit of generosity, and they died. They died. God has shown that he will exercise pretty severe and ferocious power in order to keep the church holy and whole. Don't you agree? Now, this might make you hope that God retains to the balconies of heaven, but this only makes me further committed to the church and reminds me that I can't take anything for granted, especially my inclusion and placement in the body of Christ. Remember back in chapter three, This is the temple of God. This is the body of Christ. We belong to Him. Now, I am here not out of a right. I did not earn this place or deserve this place. I'm here because of privilege that God has given me this place, and it is a gift that I am a member of the body of Christ, and I should take it very sacredly. Don't you think? So I I preface this, this, this whole chapter tonight like that because it shows us how sacred and serious our role in the local church is. It's not a casual or a nonchalant affair. Now I know, I know, I hear the voices you hear. A lot of people conduct themselves very casually. They come and go as they please, and it doesn't faze them one bit. I mean, come on, weren't there a lot of people like Ananias and Sapphira that weren't given anything? I mean, weren't there a lot of people who didn't even sell their land? I mean, why didn't God strike them dead? I don't know. I don't. All I know is that those who were accountable were held to a very, very high standard. And here's what I know. You wouldn't want to trade that level of accountability because to go about this life without the knowledge you have and to enter eternity without the knowledge you have would be a far worse thing and a far more costly thing. Don't you think? All I know is based on what I know, it won't fly for me to be casual or nonchalant. I am too accountable and I know all too well about the importance of my participation. So I can't ignore it. So Paul says to the people of Corinth, hey, y'all, I'm coming with the power of God and they know that he means business. And here's the two things that he's gonna deal with in chapter five. How the church reacts to sin and how the church responds to sinners. Now, we just read about in Acts that God is very serious about the church being holy and whole, right? Right? I mean, I'm not going to mince any words. He killed two people that didn't take it seriously. Again, I don't know if he's ever done that again. I don't. I, ho- I don't really want him to do that, right? I mean, I don't want anybody to die. I'm serious. But I do know that if I'm going to take John 3, 16 seriously, if I'm going to take the resurrection of Jesus seriously, then I can't ignore a whole chapter about church participation and church discipline. Right, I can't do that. And as a pastor, I've got to talk to you all about that because, hey, I think that's a big deal. right? So look at chapter 5 back in 1 Corinthians, chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. This is Paul addressing the issue of how they are reacting to sin, reacting to sin. So somebody has sinned, and he's wanting to talk to us how we react to it. Like, what do we think about it? Is it a big deal, not a big deal? Let's talk about it. So it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such such sexual immorality that is not even named among the Gentiles that a man even has his father's wife. So probably, again, that's not his mom. That's a man with his stepmother or, 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 yeah, his stepmother. So uh, some incest going on, uh, again, that, that would have been pretty taboo for the Jews. But a, in the pagan world, hey, that's kind of normal. But again, this was clearly not the way of Christians and clearly the way that they had been told not to do, yet this is going on in the church. So, and and, and he says in verse two, and you are puffed up or you are arrogant about it. So he's, act, he's he's upset with how they're responding to it or they're reacting to it. So he's not, he's gonna deal with the sin with the sinner but he first wants to talk about how the church is reacting to the sin you're puffed up would you not or should you not have rather mourned should you not have rather mourned so their reaction to this egregious sin a person reverting back to their pagan ways was arrogance Now, we can interpret this two different ways, and and I think there are examples of both in the church. Uh, There are those that reacted by feeling better about themselves, and there are those that reacted by downplaying it and dismissing it. And really, that comes from one of two places— there were those that were establishing their own righteousness by saying, oh, wow, look what this guy's doing. I'm not that bad. I mean, have you heard about what, what Joe's been up to? I mean, did you, did you, you know, he walked in with his dad and his mother-in-law or his stepmother the other, the other day. Did you really know what was going on there? I mean, hey, if, he, if, if that guy's in and he's living like that, then, hey, my little white lie, not that big deal, right? My little stuff that I do when nobody else sees me, hey, that's not that big of a deal, is it? So that was an arrogance, right? That was a I'm righteous because this guy's an example of what it could how bad I could be or how bad I'm not. The other example is excusing their own sin. So, oh, man, he's doing that? Whew, I guess I can get by with worse. I guess I can get by with my own sin. So you see there's this downplaying of sin. Both are unacceptable reactions when it comes to sin that's overtaking a brother or sister in the body of Christ. Our initial reaction to sin cannot be, wow, that makes me feel better about myself. Or, wow, that's not a big deal. I mean, yeah, I know that's taboo and it's inappropriate, but come on, be easy on the guy. Our reaction to sin cannot be either good, you know, hey, I'm not that bad good for me or hey he's not that bad we're all we're all doing some stuff that we shouldn't do both extremes reflect an arrogant heart that doesn't take serious the gravity and the damage of sin now we talked about this a few weeks ago but we should never feel better about ourselves at other person other people's expense that reflects that we don't take serious our own equally as bad sin but That's where both of these points come from a common thread because the same can be said about downplaying someone's sin. We cannot downplay our sin or others' sin. We cannot downplay because that's suggesting that we don't realize how we made it into the body of Christ. Jesus died for sin. Jesus was killed by sin. To act like sin is not a toxic, damaging, detrimental thing is to ignore what killed Jesus he died for our sin. He was killed by our sin. He died to destroy its power over our lives. It buried him, but he overcame it, proving that sin does not have to bury us. And if it's still throwing dirt over us, then hey, we're ignoring the remedy. So we should always understand sin through the lens of that it costs Jesus his life apart from Jesus' sacrifice, Sin will destroy our lives, but in his resurrection, sin loses its power over us. It loses its power over us in life and in death. So, so, what is the proper reaction to sin in our church family, in our, in our Christian world? Brokenness, intercession, heaviness, concern, by no means arrogance or downplaying it. Our reaction to sin is to be overcome with burden, to call on the power of Jesus and intercede for the sinner. Listen back in chapter four, Paul said, "Hey, talk is cheap. Power is when change is where change comes from. Our reaction to sin cannot be hey let 's sit around and gossip hey let 's laugh about it let 's put somebody down, sit in a circle." Exerting our expert opinions or trying to get inside someone's head isn't going to solve the problem. Our reaction to sin should always be to get on our hands and knees and put our faces to the ground and pray, pray, pray for the person. And if they're willing, pray with the person. See, it sounds like the case in Corinth that somebody was pretty defiant about their sin and pretty intentional about their sin. They didn't want any prayer. That didn't excuse the people from not praying for them. Now, we don't know how they ended up at the place as a member of the church. Clearly, they were in and they chose to not live as they should live as a Christian. We don't know how they got there. How did they backslide? We don't know all that. We just know that, hey, one day this guy decided he was gonna really send it up. Listen to how Paul responds to them and how we should respond to sinners in the same vein. Back in verse two, midstream. Should you not have rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you? For I indeed is absent in the body, but present in spirit, have already judged as though I was present him who has done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together, underline that, highlight that, that's a big deal. When you are gathered together along with my spirit, as in when you are meeting together for the purpose of worshiping God, exalting Jesus, bringing the body of Christ under the voice of God. When you are gathered together along with the spirit, with the power of our Lord, deliver such a one to Satan for destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. This is a big deal. This is a big statement. So I got to talk about this as we close. Paul does not mince his words. This guy was involved in a self-destructive lifestyle. Paul says, hey, I've already sorted this out in my prayer. I've already made my mind about this guy. He is a toxic individual who is damaging the body of Christ. He needs to be set aside in the spirit and allowed for God to work in him and hopefully bring about change in him. Again, I've had similar experiences in my prayer life over people. There's a point where you have to just ask God to do what you cannot to do. Paul did not say, hey, stone the guy, excommunicate the guy, make an example of the guy, humiliate the guy. He said, hey, we're talking in terms of spirit here. You want to see the guy get better? Then you pray for him to go through whatever it takes to get better. And I don't mean just, oh, Lord Jesus, deal with him, and then move on. I mean, you get yourself under that person in prayer, and you, can, you carry that burden like Jesus carried your, cross, your burden on his cross. But I want to talk about this. What does it mean when he says, when you come together? Paul says that when they came together and proclaimed what is true and right in God's word, as an assembly joined together in the same spirit, that they were to give place to the Spirit of God to enact discipline and judgment. Now, what does that mean? Here's what I don't think it means. I don't think this means that every person that is suspected to be committing some public sin needs to be confronted. Because otherwise, we would all have to be confronted on a daily basis. You hear me? I believe this is saying that when we gather together as an assembly in the Spirit of God... We are giving place to the Spirit of God to do what he has shown he is able to do. Go read Acts 5. He is able to do it. Nobody said, hey, Peter confronted them because they brought to Peter and they lied to him. But I want you to remember, and I want to make you aware of, if you haven't ever read it, the parable of the wheats and the tares. You can read this on your own in Matthew chapter 13. I encourage you to look at that sometime. But in the parable of the wheat and the tare, the story says that, that while the man who sowed a field slept, an enemy came and sowed tares in the field. And someone said, hey, should we go in and get every single tare and uproot it? And the master says, no, 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 no. When harvest comes, I will separate the wheat from the tare. But don't you think it's your place to go in there and start ripping people up or ripping things up? Now in the Bible, harvest season refers to that time that God through his spirit is holding us accountable and having a reckoning over our hearts. Is there a time and place for confrontation? Yes, but I believe that when the people of God gather together in the spirit of God, we are giving place to the spirit of God to do what he is able to do. That's why it's important that we assemble with the heart focused on the Lord. Is there a place for confrontation? Yes, there is. Jesus even says that. But this is not for the purpose of forced confessions or zealous condemnations, but gracious confrontations that lead to eventual conversions or change. And that's why the church has never been just a place where we line up in rows, but a church where we are called to come together in circles in community. The church can navigate these challenging situations by simply committing to proclaiming God's word and modeling godly lifestyles. Look at verse six. Your glorifying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump sincere, since you are truly unleavened for indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Therefore let us, not, let us keep the feast not with old leaven nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth." Again, this is why the church is called to be a place where people are encouraged to live their lives out loud and in public, where nobody is left alone in a corner. Acts makes it very clear that the early church was not just about sitting in rows worshiping, but they were devoted together in fellowship, breaking bread and in prayer together. Hebrews chapter 10 tells us this. Let's consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting meeting together as the habit of some is, but encouraging one another. Again, this is not some idea of filing in line and going in and finding our place, but it's an idea of a community that's leaning on each other and that's living alongside each other, taking seriously the hearts of each other. This is why corporate worship is important, but also why communal fellowship is as important. That's how the Holy Spirit separates the wheats from the tares when the church is committed to doing it the right way. I've seen God do this. I hate seeing people leave a church, but I, deep down, it's not always a departure of displeasure. Sometimes it's God removing. He does this on a local level, on a small church level, on a big church level. That's how he does it. God is still sovereign over his church. Christ is in control over his body. We celebrate what is right and pure, and we do not tolerate what is hypocritical and detrimental to the body. One reason why we've emphasized being connected because it forces people to consider how their private lives reflect their public personas. We all should be new and changed in Christ. We'll wrap up in verse 9 through 13. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covenants or extortioners or adulterers since then you would have to go out of the world. But I ru- I've written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother or a sister who is sexually immoral, covetous, adulterer, a reviler, a drunkard, extortioner. Not to even eat with such a person, as in the fellowship of the church body, as in letting this go and, and not addressing the sin. For what have I to do with judging those outside or those who are outside? Do, not judge those who are, do you not judge those who are inside? So Paul says, say hey, the church often wants to talk about what's wrong outside. He says, I want to talk about what's going on inside because that's the issue. But those who are outside God judges, therefore put away from yourselves the evil person. The church should be far less concerned about how sinful the world is and much more intentional about how holy and whole the body is. And that's why we proclaim very boldly and we put on clear display what we believe so that the Holy Spirit is given room to measure and hold each of us accountable. The categories that Paul says the church cannot tolerate, it sends a message there's a distinct way to be better without allowing harmful lifestyles to creep in. All these that he names reflect a heart that has detached itself from accountability to God and accountability to his body. He bookends the, 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 the section by referring to the immoral and the extortioner or someone who is a swindler, someone who uses or abuses others for personal gain. Paul says that a Christian cannot look at someone as if they are a commodity to be used or someone for whom they can abuse for their own personal gain. That is not the way of a Christian. He also mentions things like greed and adultery and reviling, drunkenness, where someone exalts themselves to the place of God without considering the consequences that come on those around them or below them or beneath them. These are unbecoming for any Christian because they betray our commitment to Jesus and his body. We cannot have these inside the church because they will destroy the church from the inside out. There's plenty of people outside that may be committing these sins, but that's not our problem, Paul says. Our priority as a church is to maintain the image of Christ Forming a body that honors the Lord and those he's joined us to. So my actions matter because the way I treat you and the way I treat them reflects how I think about you and how I would treat you if I had the option to. And it ultimately reflects how I relate to Jesus. Church, it's time that judgment begin in the house of God. It's time that we clean house so that we might reflect his image properly, bear his image distinctly, and build up his body with integrity and sincerity. What's on the line? You know what's on the line? Our testimony, how will we ever reach the outside world if the inside does not look like the Jesus we preach? It's not possible. It's crucial how we react to sin, how we respond to sinners because we are the body of Christ. The Savior who died for sin welcomes sinners and he offers a life transformed by grace. So let us take seriously how we react to sin, how we respond to sinners because that reflects the work that God has done or hasn't done in our own heart. We've read tonight, God takes serious the health of his body. And you know this, if you don't take serious the health of your body, you'll end up in a pretty bad place physically. God is not keen to see his body in a bad place. And he wants us to consider even the weakest among us, even the most fragile, the most sensitive. My actions, your actions, they all matter. Regardless of where you are, here, there, somewhere else, our actions matter because we are the body of Christ. And a little Leaven the whole lump. So let's purge that, un, that leaven. Let's be held to this high standard and let us walk boldly in the, in the image that Christ has made us and holds us to. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this really sacred text that, Lord, I, I don't take lightly as a preacher and as a pastor walking your church through a passage that is so crucial and so important God, I pray that we all as Christians would look at this chapter and reflect on how it speaks to us because it, it's easy to ignore and it would be convenient to ignore, but we can't do that. Lord, help us see the way we live matters to our brother and sister and help us understand that the health of the body reflects our own commitment to you and your body. Father, we love you. We thank you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.